It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We are with you until 8 o'clock this morning. Football Sunday program follows our 9 o'clock sports update. It's uh, Mark Malusis, David Deal with that fine program. Along after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is by with the Sports Edge program. We move into a discussion with a guest who is uh, in studio with us, has an interesting uh, background. He is Dr. Stephen Rudin. He's the founder, principal mentor, and president of Peak Year LLC, which we're going to find out about in the course of our discussion. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you so much, Bob. Really glad to be here. And um, I know you're somebody who's become familiar with with this program. You're used to these early hours because you have a background as as a medical doctor. Yes, indeed. Woke up all the time during my residency (laughs) and training. Okay, I guess the the obvious question to start us off in this discussion, and there's a lot of things that we're going to get into in um, chatting with you, but how do you explain what Peak Year LLC is all about, first of all? I like to explain it in terms of the crisis that that really created it. There's just far too many students that are unprepared to go on to college Mm-hmm. and maybe a larger number that begin college and can't navigate it, whether they don't have the innate ability to regulate themselves in the environment or they don't have the academics to keep up with the school that they've managed to get themselves into. Um, any variety of things results in a large number of students coming home the first Thanksgiving or Christmas break and going, I'm not going back. And Something like 30% of kids don't go back at all. So peak year began as an opportunity, um, initially thinking we would substitute an entire year for a gap year. Now we offer peak year um, uh, experiences, a period of months to a year in which you can reset yourself for a much more successful launch for a school and life ahead. Okay. Now, let's wrap our head around that number. 30% do not go back? Recent article in the New York Times three, four weeks ago mm-hmm. um, by Bill Stixrud, uh, William Stixrud um, uh, and his partner uh, who've written a book about this. Um, statistics are, are really concerning. 30% don't return. And kind of corollary with that is a look at um, our traditional view of college as a four-year experience. Right. 20% of kids finish in, in, in four years the number of students who finish in five years or even six is not that high. But the worst statistic is for kids who flunk out in the first year. The number that actually go back at all is very low, and that doesn't portend a good a good future. Wow. It's kind of shocking. Okay, well, when the student comes home on that break, and they may be home now. Okay, they may, may, may have made that announcement. They're my stu- not. <laughs> my students are home now with the situation. They're, they're not, they make that announcement that they're not, they're not going back. Um, I guess once the parent peels himself off the floor, um, how should they react? You know, I think peeling yourself off the floor is kind of an authentic experience. <laughs> Um, the question is um, really uh, preparing parents preparing parents now for the possibility that this might happen, 
um, because of the media. I think the media has been great in educating people. Um, from the parental side, the, the first thing is to recognize you probably have a very stressed young adult coming home. Uh, they may be very dysregulated. They, they may have done a lot of drugs, drank a lot, lost their cohort of friends, feel humiliated. So the first thing is to not stress them out further and to um, uh, just try to accept that something has happened. The idea here is for the student to regain their own agency. And, and if they haven't had it, most of these students who flunk out never really had a chance to grow up, practice making sufficient mistakes, and be imperfect. So this is their chance. So treat them as someone who's had a setback, but give limited support and just the encouragement that they'll find themselves and let the process kind of go forward. Don't overwhelm them with, with you know, with money. Don't overwhelm them with, uh, uh, with shame or guilt. You know, as you say that, though, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking that for a lot of parents, they see college. Um, it's almost like it's that's the finish line. Okay, that's the big prize there. That's for them the payoff. Okay, or what? They hope is going to be the payoff. So there's naturally going to be some uh, disappointment, some letdown. Um, how, how do the parents get past that feeling, or how do they deal with it? I mean, it's it's natural emotion. I think both the students and the parents have a process to go through, mm-hmm. having been part of the. Um, opportunity to help kids relaunch for many years. One thing parents can be sure of is that looking at this in the future, the great opportunity is they'll be proud of their kids. Their kids will not end up as some kind of train wreck. And to recognize that (laughs) in their own lives, they probably learn from mistakes and miscalculations. Mm -hmm. So I think um, there's some optimism. We try to teach adults as well as students to have what uh, Carol Dweck termed a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. It's not that you'll never do it. It's that you can't do it yet. And you have to work hard, think about new ways to be better, acquire new skills. Same with a parent. It's not that your child can't do it. Maybe just not yet. Look, maybe you're contributory to thinking that the only place to go is Penn or Harvard or Stanford. Maybe, you're, maybe your child would have done better in a slightly smaller pond with less pressure to begin. I think it's an Overall, I see parents and kids come together with a much greater understanding of each other as this reset takes place, and they find their real place in the world. How did you get into this area of work? Mm. I've had many careers, and this particular uh, company, Peak Year, was the um, second or third mentoring company that I began, all for specific purposes of areas that I thought weren't sufficiently served by traditional academics or because the um, I knew scientists working in different areas mm-hmm. didn't necessarily experientially remediate issues. Um, this problem uh, was surfacing more and more in students that I saw in, uh, in an organization I've had for some 18 years, which is called Individual U, um, which for a long time was uh, kind of the uh, place of refuge and and, and resetting yourself if high school didn't work, 
but then students still weren't prepared for college. So we saw, we saw the emphasis on test preparation, pushing to have good grades, manufacturing a profile of something other than you authentically were, resulting in a student who never had a chance to navigate their own life. And as soon as the numbers started to reflect that, people started to really see how this millennial group, the last three or four years, has really been overstressed, overmedicated. I mean, there's, there's huge numbers of kids with problems. Um, I saw the need to create um, um, not just another gap year, but a place to acquire transformative neurocognitive skills so that you would make your next shot at success accompanied by a whole different set of whole different set of capabilities. Do you have people raise the question of even whether or not the child, excuse me, the young person should go to college or should pursue higher education? Of course. And um, five years ago, that answer might have been, uh, been, uh, been asked with a certain kind of lament, with a sadness, you know, is mm -hmm. my kid a college kid? Right. So I mentor many young individuals, I, I, including millennials who are young entrepreneurs, who have no interest in college. I, I'm working with a young woman from um, El Salvador now who happens to um, uh, work for me and do social media with me. But she recognized, she had a family with two successful businesses and recognized that what she wanted to do would only be impeded by college. Four years later, the whole <laughs> landscape would change. I mentor kids from extraordinarily successful families around the world, and college isn't on their mind sustainability of the planet, spirituality, systems thinking, regendering of wealth, things things that are far, they're not interested in the, too much of college was a second industrial revolution experience. Mm -hmm. Colleges are changing now. You see it every day, offering gap years, new courses, coding. There was a meeting recently where Bill Gates met with six people about executive function, something that we teach, including my mentor, Adele Diamond, my teacher. Colleges are looking now to take these skills that are necessary and make them an integral part, emotional intelligence, of what they're teaching. They will make themselves relevant. Dr. Stephen Rudin is talking with us on our program. He's the founder, principal mentor, and president of Peak Year LLC. We've really just begun in our discussion. We're going to talk more with you. We'll take a pause in this chat. We'll also try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us a little later in this hour. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. And after our 9 o'clock update, it's the Football Sunday program with Melusis and Deal here on The Fan. A lot of football action on WFAN today. Dr. Stephen Rudin is in studio with us. He is the founder, principal mentor, and president of Peak Year LLC. And he's talking with us uh, this hour of our program. One thing we have not done is to mention your website, which has a lot of information there that some of the people listening to us may want to follow up on. Would you give the website address? Sure. It's peak, P-E-A-K, year, Y-E-A-R, experience, E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E.com, peakyearexperience.com. One of the things that I was thinking about in heading into this discussion today, because there's so many different areas where potentially we can go, 
when you're talking about um, students who've come home to stay, okay, and I guess beginning that process of examining what's next, okay, how do you get them focused on, for lack of a better term, what it is they really want to do, not a, what somebody thinks they should do. Absolutely. I think uh, it's a very good question. In our experience, it's a process. And, and literally the first thing is to have them breathe. It's essential. <laughs> Just tell them, take a day, take a breath, breathe and fear yourself. Mm-hmm. And borrowing something from the Navy SEALs, we occasionally work with the SEALs, get up in the morning, make your bed. Very important. Can't know where you are if you don't know where you slept. While you're at it, pick up your clothes. Maybe there's some chores that need to be done in the house. When call them your parents. Show them that you're functioning in some kind of way. Wash some dishes. Sitting and breathing forever is a lovely thing to do. But it also helps if you can extend it. So we would say as a second step, practice some mindfulness. I think it's great to get out of the house. There's mindfulness centers all over the city. Mm -hmm. But you can get an app. You can practice on Headspace. But taking quiet time to clear your mind, to try to be non-judgmental, to develop some, uh, some personal calm and equanimity really helps. If you're calm there's a greater chance that you'll be able to use your executive functions to figure out what you're trying to be and accomplish. So once you've done that, and that, this is just the kind of first couple of days, uh, Tara, Pope, Tara Pope Parker had a lovely piece in the Times the other day about the four essential things to do in your life. Mm. And I'll, I'll preface it by saying sleep. Everybody's dysregulated, so <laughs> start to sleep which means put away your electronics oh boy, and plan eight hours of rest because it will begin to regulate you. And after you've slept, move. Take a walk around the block. Go to the gym. Start to think about some good nutrition. You probably didn't have that in college. Think about putting <laughs> different fuel into your, into your body. <laughs> Replenish. Tara mentioned replenishing. It's really important. Take the time to give yourself a chance of restoring your own balance and then connect. And I don't mean turn on your computer and, and turn on your apps. I mean go out and talk with people. Isolation really adds to this experience. So you're, you're getting up in the morning. You're doing some chores. You're outside moving. And now you're thinking, how am I going to find myself? Your parents are saying – we have confidence you'll find yourself. You need us. We're here. We're happy you're, you can feel safe at home. When you need to go someplace else, we'll be, we'll be supportive of your attempts to, to find yourself. We suggest after that to begin to journal. Mm. Journaling by hand. I brought a pen and pen in case anybody's, oh, well, you won't see it here. But um, writing, pressing down, thinking, owning what you've written is very helpful. You, you can go back. I'm uh, just finishing a book called College Trainwreck, and uh, 
one of the things we really emphasize in college <laughs> train wreck is to go back and 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 take a look at what what happened behind you in, in the rearview mirror, what hit you from the side. Nobody gets to a situation in just one, for the most part in just one day. So the journal will help you. And there's a great exercise when I was working with uh, Lori Kelly, who teaches emotional intelligence at the Yale Business School and is a mm-hmm. wonderful emotional intelligence coach. Um, it's a wonderful exercise for emotional intelligence. Draw a circle and imagine yourself going on a journey as part of your journal. Draw a circle it could, and imagine that circle could take place over a year, a week, a month. You don't know when you're starting. And ask yourself, where do I want to go? Who's traveling with me? Where, where might I stop? What do I want to leave behind in each place? What might I want to take with me? And in that imagined journey, you can be as colorful as you want. You can be as prosaic or poetic as you want to. But begin to see your journey off the page. It will, it's very synesthetic. It will bring up all your senses and all your ideas and where you've traveled. Um, if, you're, if on that journey that you're, that you're creating, you see a place you might like to stay, consider you might be there. Maybe it's telling you something about where you want to be. So this idea of not only journaling but kind of using more sensory input really has been helpful to lots of people in discovering what they want to do for the rest of that year. And that's a good beginning. Um, and I've done that exercise myself, and it's wonderful. thought I'd take a year and everywhere I went, teach neurocognitive skills, leave behind a small place for people to learn, leave behind students who knew how to teach other people. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful process. And if you can begin to think where you want a journey, what are you passionate about? Mm. And your, your, your real task is, what are you passionate about? How will you turn that into a meaningful purpose? And which is where we then suggest um, our next step, which is acquiring transformative neurocognitive skills so that you not only have an idea, but you have a real capability to do it. And we could talk about those if you want to. Okay, let me give a follow-up because this, is, this intrigues me, this whole idea of what are you passionate about, okay? What happens when that question is being asked and you get the blank stare? <clears throat> I'm sure that happens. <clears throat> well, the first thing it tells you is you shouldn't be the person in this kind of work. Like <laughs> someone asks you what they're passionate about, <laughs> you know. Um, we're experientialists. We have students discover their passions and their joys by working with a team of mentors, 15, 16 mentors, mm-hmm. and not just talking, but but even within the city or digitally online or in museums, looking and thinking about what's interesting and unpacking it. So someone could say, would you like a career in radio? And they go, I don't know, I'm not so good on radio. But they could come and listen to a public affairs broadcast and say, I love public affairs. I didn't know that I could actually use media to do that. Or I like sports, but I'm not very good at it. Oh, I didn't know I could report on it. You have to bring millennials, which is the group we mostly have now with this problem, mm-hmm. are not particularly great at unpacking what's, what the possibilities for them to be are. So part of instead of asking the question, we let them experience things and say, I'd like to go back. I'd like to try it again. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways they find it. And the other is in the process of acquiring neurocognitive skills. They very much expand your idea of what you'd like to do. Mm. 
And when someone talks about their passion, do they also express a certain fear? Well, that's a great question. Um, there must be some percentage of people, and I see a small percentage, even with the large number of people I see, mm -hmm. still a small percent of all comers. Um, the fear about your passion, first of all, it could come from the fact that it, it could be rejected by your family or other people. Oh, yeah. You'll be inadequate. Oh, yeah. And a fabulous person, who I, of course, won't name, who in her heart knew she was a jazz singer and in her family life was selected to be kind of a, a music therapy teacher. So really, really wanting to pursue her passion brought up all kinds of issues. And I can only say she's well on her road to fabulous success. And um, if you hear her sing, you know, it's worth three times the price of admission, mm -hmm. which is great. So um, study side of the street, just imagine it. So it's one thing. And I think part of the fear is how will, how will I find it? Exactly what you said. If someone gives you a test and describes 10 careers, interesting things to do now that you might be passionate about they're not there they take place between groups of people with an idea and you don't have to have every single skill so um your passion can live as a connection between the skills and ideas of other people you find where you belong that way um ken ken, so ken robinson so ken robinson likes to call it finding your element mm -hmm. and maybe that seems a little bit more encouraging your element, you kind of feel, oh, it's where other people are and I belong. Your passion, too many think they're watching flash dance. <laughs> Not everybody wants to get up there, you know, find their passion and make it happen. <laughs> well, you know, um, and, and, and the reason why I asked that question about the fear, because I think at times... we may almost deny our passion because of fear. And um, this is a way of talking about how to take that step or steps to get past that. So if I would, I, I, by the way, I don't practice medicine, I'm not a psychologist, and there are, there are some people who certainly in getting past their fear might be very well served by having a therapist mm -hmm. somewhere on the spectrum of mental health professionals help them. Um, the neurocognitive skills that we help people acquire are hugely helpful in that sense also. If part of your fear is can you actually do the actionable, willful, purposeful skills that are required in what you'd like to do, executive function, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex of your brain, the PFC, mm -hmm. is responsible for that set of actions. And so the three core functions, being able to um, inhibit you from distract, inhibitory control so you're not distracted by your inner thoughts, so you're not distracted by what other people are telling you, sufficient working memory to do complex, multi-step problems, hold a conversation. People are afraid that what actually is inherent in doing the thing they want to do will be beyond them. So if you have a great working memory and the third core function, which is cognitive flexibility, seeing a new and difficult thing 
and being able to use it to your advantage instead of being thrown by it and concerned, a lot of the fear can be abated by acquiring good executive function skill. And th that builds into the ability to reason and to plan and to organize. So if, you're, if your concern is kind of on a functional basis, will I be able to do what my pa passion requires? You know, you want to be an airplane, air traffic controller, it's good to get there on time and to be able to follow the planes. <laughs> Some people are afraid their emotions won't sustain them. So right. emotional intelligence teaches you to use your emotions. Right. And I think it's true of each one of these skills, mindfulness to be, to have personal sang -foi and resilience to bounce back from the fact that you might get your ass kicked in. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need to be able to recover. Real life teaches you it's not always easy. And there's some joyful things too. If you learn how to get in a flow state by pitting your best current ability against your greatest challenge, you see the joy in trying. So I think you can abate the fear by learning skills that let you encounter it and enjoy it. As part of this process, Getting people to talk, getting someone talking, getting them to open up. At the start, what's that like? At the start, I have so many talented mentors that work for me. I, I, I try to um, recognize that I'm an old guy and that some of these students have particular types of personalities, histories, specific likes. Mm -hmm. So Allison Meek is a fabulous mentor who works for me and is a mom of three kids and can solve anything. And she's like, you know, female Shelby Foote, great historian and just smart as a whip. And a lot of young women just love to talk. They can relate to her completely. So mm. opening up to Allison, it's simple. Mm -hmm. Matt Kelly, my partner, is a PhD and must be one of the smartest guys ever to come through Browns. People love science, but their science career has ended up on the rocks. Matthew's great at encouraging them to see that the foundational skills can only be, always be, be picked up. It's the theoretical thinking. It's the new ideas that matter. So we find someone to have the initial conversation. I'm always there. I, I'm sure I represent some kind of kind, parental, wise uncle or parent. But we find mentors that very much match the profile of the student as the initial contact. And they might go out and have sushi or, or you know, or, 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 or go out for, for any any kind of experience together, most important thing is for them to feel known. Dr. Stephen Rudin, our guest in this hour of our program, he's the founder, principal mentor, and president of Peak Year LLC. More with him as we continue on our program this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter, and we are in the home stretch of our program talking with Dr. Stephen Rutten. He is in studio with us. He's the founder, principal mentor, and president of Peak Year LLC. On the web, by the way, at Peak Year Experience. That's all as one word, dot com. There's quite a bit of information on uh, that site as well. And, you know, we've shared an awful lot in this discussion. Hopefully, some of the folks that were listening to us um, will able to follow up um, through that site with you on some things. And I, I haven't even mentioned because we've been so deep in discussion. If you're listening, you want to join in on some of the points that are being made by um, Dr. Rudin in our discussion. Our number here at the fan is 877-337-6666. Now, there's a couple of different areas where I wanted to touch upon uh, because, the, again, there's so many 
areas where you potentially we could potentially go. But one of the things is this whole idea of, I guess, for lack of a better term, the role of parents and how it is that you feel parents should proceed. And I, I think you put it very well, uh, so I'm going to let you put this in your own words. Sure. Actually, I'm going to uh, put this in the words of the great Jay Hughes, who is, for the last 60 years, been the great mentor to families around the world. Um, uh, Jay, in his books and in his teaching, has been my mentor and colleague, would say that the role of parents is to prepare their children for the road, to help them individuate, and to let them follow their dream. What we see happening instead is that parents are preparing the road for their children, using all their pull, far too many tutors. I've had parents, I've had kids in Ivy League schools, top schools, and the parents are calling me up and telling me what I should be teaching them while they're in college. It's It doesn't stop. They never have a chance to guide their own lives. So, of course, they become dysregulated in college, social life, drinking, drugs, staying up late. I would say to parents, give your kids a chance to grow up and experience the real world in a safe way while they're still in your home. And a lot of this would be avoided. Why do you think parents do that? It's a highly competitive financial world. People are driven by their own narcissism and wanting to see their kids succeed or maybe it's their own value system. They know they worked hard and succeeded and they want to see their kids, you know, do better. A generation ago it was helicopter parents checking everything out but now Mm -hmm. you have people just really, there's no experience of life in their kids. Their parents guide the whole thing and then go, go live and it's throwing a bird out of a tree with no wings. (laughs) Can't imagine it's going to work. Yeah, that that that's not a good picture. It's not and a pretty it's not picture. Gonna, not going to have a good ending. Uh, They're we'll flopping our offices. <laughs> I didn't ask you early on in our discussion, but I've been thinking about this the entire time that we've been talking. We keep using this term, mentor, and I should have at the very beginning of this discussion said to you what I'm going to say now. What is an effective mentor Uh, let's go back to the Tao it says in the Tao when the work of a good teacher or mentor is done the student will say we did this ourselves the first thing that's good is you don't take credit secondly you have a subtle hand and understand how to share what you know so the student comes to it not so they repeat what you do to kind of become a version 2.0 virtuoso. A good mentor shares their knowledge without pain, but not without work. You know, you said something to me off the air about um, parents today, and the words you used were um, raising their children as virtuosos with great grades, which I thought was a really great quote. Of course, that won't help you we're in the fourth industrial revolution now, according mm-hmm. to the World Economic Forum, close to the fifth. What you need is cognitive flexibility, resilience, design thinking. 
being a virtuoso will not solve your problems. It certainly won't help you deal with artificial intelligence. You might not play that song. So I think um, it's a beautiful thing to have a repertoire of great classical music. It's a beautiful thing to have a beautiful skill set. But that can't be the main focus of how you raise your kids. That's just a reflection on you, not their own authentic journey of who they are. Our education system, how is that contributing to this whole situation? Well, we, you know, let me go back again. Let me quote another mentor, mentor meaning my own personal mentor mm-hmm. of mine, Dr. Adele Diamond, um, who is certainly, in my mind, the world's expert on executive function, has characterized some of the most important diseases of, of, uh, of childhood. As a bench scientist, is greatly responsible for saving the lives of kids with ADD. If there's anything she's committed to right now, it's in getting research funded to prove that what we've taken out of our schools, music, art, dance, gymnastics, circus, that's where you develop real-world practice and pushing what you love. That's where your executive functions come from. And we've, we've eliminated it to put in STEM. And this comes, she's just been named one of the 15 great neuroscientists in the world. And she's telling us what we've taken out in an attempt to kind of give our kids a greater fund of knowledge in the beginning, to have them look like the kids of other countries, is killing their creativity, their executive function, their ability to do all the things that made Americans have outstanding, interesting minds before. We've taken out critically important things from our schools. And now we, in order to get them back in, you have to fund research to show their value. You can't get them back in. And I'd like to say to anyone, you know, look at, look at Dr. Diamond's website at UBC. Look at the, at the writings of many great neuroscientists, but especially Adele Diamond. We need to fund research to show the importance of the basic skills and having a good time for young kids practicing things they love and will practice hard to develop their brains. Now, the key question with what she's saying, is anybody listening? Well, Bill Gates met with her not re- recently. He met with six people about executive functions at a landmark college. I think, uh, you know, she meets with the Dalai Lama. She meets with world leaders and, and people everywhere, and she's um, known by everybody. But no one, even Adele, can get schools to adapt, widespread to adapt things, unless there's research that shows that, that it works. Same thing with uh, the efforts of the wonderful people at Yale to get emotional intelligence into our public schools. You have to bring your own funds. You have to show that it's the success in it. In our work, we try to show experientially the success of our students so that families will just, instead of waiting for a major change to come through in education, will take the time to get these skills individuals for their kids now. But we'd like to see it be part of mainstream education everywhere. That whole idea of, you know, demonstrating experiential um, success, is that difficult for some people to really grasp? The word might be, but the fact is we learn what we need to use in the world. Old Russian experience, Puftarenia Matuchenia. You know, repetition is the mother of learning. We, we, we practice and do what we need to do in the world. It's not difficult. If your life depends on it, you learn it. Or if you love it, or if it is social meaning, people understand that what they, if, 
Drumming is a great example. We teach a lot of kids to drum, to teach executive function. Why drumming? Because everybody wants to be in a band, whether it's to <laughs> meet boys or girls or have social connection or they imagine themselves as being a rock star. Or I have kids who want to learn Tai Chi sword. They imagine themselves as Zaitoichi, the, bl- you know, the blind swordsman. Very cool. I have these young guys that just go, I'll do that if that's going to make it better. Right. It won't make it better because it's Tai Chi sword. It'll make it better if you love it. Practice it, go to tournaments, go to a class, respect each other, are creative in what you do. Real-world practice of things that are interesting and variable, that's what creates resilience. That's what creates problem-solving that they need. They can share with their classmates to make schools better, make classes better. That whole idea of problem-solving, critical thinking, at times, do you feel almost like that's become or is becoming a lost art? Only because we're not developing a student's executive functions. The core executive functions that I mentioned to you give rise to what are called higher-order functions, reasoning, planning, critical thinking. There's a combination of several of them um, that have that have a particular vocabulary that is the kind of thinking that you need. Mm-hmm. It's a lost art, partly because we don't read as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. You learn critical thinking by reading great novels. I have a friend who was raised by reading about Aunt Betsy Trotweiler. You know, you, you get to think, what, what were their lives about? What was the point of the story? What, what's coming up? We lost part of it there, but we absolutely lose part of it by 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 turning everything into a short piece of data that we look at quickly. We think inform- we substitute information for a really deeper cognitive process of, of reasoning and even more trying to solve problems where we don't even know what the problem is yet. There's a term in design thinking, wick- wicked problems. You don't know the problem or the solution, and you need to form a consensus and an iterative process to get to it. We may have lost it, but it's easy to regain it. That's one of the most popular courses in some of our best colleges. I admire the, the university's efforts now to bring right into the curriculum the kinds of programs that will restore that to our young students so they don't go out into the, into the work world missing what's most in demand and missing what's demand on the world stage to solve our problems before we don't have much time. It's good that they're doing it, but, you know, as you're saying that, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, but it, in a way, it's a sad commentary that they even have to, right? that we're at that point mm. here now. You know, I, I don't have the burden or the skill to run a school, and I think you should always um, make room to respect the problems that are probably there in trying to do it. I know a lot of educators that are very well-intended, whether mm-hmm. it's funding or parental demand for grades, not so easy. You know, um, uh, the headmaster of the Riverdale School is a fabulous guy and co-founded the Character Lab at UFP with Angela Duckworth, who wrote who wrote the book on uh, on grit. He told me that in his school, which is a fabulous school, they they built all these. There's a there's a uh, small lab based on IDEO. There's there's all kinds of opportunities to study these skills, and you'd think the students would go embrace them. But they don't. They're busy getting grades. So it's, 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 there's not one person at fault or even in a, in, a, in a school that can afford to set all these things up. 
it's going to have to be a process of recognition that the students are going to have to see the value in doing something other than getting grades. Parents in the college community and the work world will have to value multiple intelligences, multiple skills that will really help us evolve as a society and, and deal with the problems we're facing right now. I just read that the temperature of the ocean's up 40%. You know, we either need epigenetic gills, or we better get moving on having people who are creative at solving problems. Mm. Very interesting discussion with Dr. Stephen Rudin on our program. Um, Dr. Rudin, as I mentioned, is the founder, principal mentor, president of Peakier LLC. The website again for Peakier LLC. Thanks for asking. It's Peak, as in P-E-A-K, year experience. And again, to say. You don't have to come for a year. Peak time experience is what we offer. They can be a month. They can be several months. They can be configured all throughout the year. Very interesting discussion. I want to thank you for um, sharing this information with us. And I think planting an interesting seed in the mind of not only myself, but some of the folks who are listening to us today and some of the areas that you have raised here. Because um, this is an area of discussion that perhaps many people would not venture into. Um, but I'm glad that we had some time to be able to explore this today. Bob, thanks so much for having me here. I always you know, find it so interesting to listen to you with your guests and kind of thrilling to be here this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Long after our 8 o'clock update, it is um, Rick Wolf who is in with the Sports Edge program. And this is a big football Sunday on WFAN. Now, imagine that. Let's think about this concept. It's January. Football would be big on WFAN? Yes, it is. Football Sunday, along after our 9 o'clock update. Malusis and Deal, and you know I love those guys. Love that program, too. You don't want to go anywhere. We will see you at 6 bright and early next Sunday morning. Our tip of the hat and a thanks to a gentleman I always forget to thank. Connor Green, thank you very much for joining us on our program. Stick around for the Sports Edge.